From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Adversity often strikes when you leave friendly confines and venture onto the road. And for the Gators, their first trip outside the state of Florida brought frustration and disappointment in Lexington. But with over half of the schedule still to play, the task turns to refocusing on the opportunities ahead. On today's show, we'll bring in FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the Bluegrass Blues where Anthony Richardson fits into the short-term game plan, where the season goes from here, a parade of Olympians stepping into the celebrity Mr. Two-Bits role, the start of basketball practice, and the most impressive records in sports in the PAT. Then, senior safety Trey Dean III talks about his rich football bloodline, how he's grown over his career, his love for malls, and more. To get us underway, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan that loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where pet lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Okay, guys, let's open up this week's roundtable with the question that that all of Gator Nation has been pondering over the course of the last few days. Um, what, what went wrong at Kentucky? That was obviously not what anybody expected. Um, and, and yet it just had that weird feel for the majority of the game where it just, it just didn't quite feel like things were clicking on that night. And some days you can still get a win when everything's not clicking. But in this case, uh, Florida was not able to do that. Well, Adam, when you commit 15 penalties, and even if you are clicking, it's going to be tough to win a game. And like you said, the Gators, there were there was a never a flow to that game uh, for Florida, really. Uh, there wasn't much of a flow at all in that game for most of it. But uh, certainly for Florida, uh, the 15 penalties, 115 yards, the eight false starts. We all know the uh, ugly numbers by now. Uh, you just don't go on the road and win at a, a, a team that like Kentucky, who is a much improved program. I know this is not – that Kentucky, this Kentucky, I think, has, has climbed above Tennessee in the pecking order of the SEC East. Having said that, Florida, you know, obviously played a bad game. And, uh, you know, what could go wrong did go wrong. And the fact that they were still in it at the end uh, was somewhat surprising considering a lot of the missteps. Uh, but, you know, I think Dan Mullen, I mean, he, he said it best. I mean, you just don't go on the road and win. You can't expect to win. When you commit 15 penalties, uh, you know, turnovers obviously uh, cost the Gators on the, the interception that led the score and then the blocked field goal. Uh, otherwise, you know, you look at the stat sheet, Florida kind of dominated offensively, held Kentucky uh, to, I think, 211 yards. But uh, again, uh, you pull your highlighter out, and you highlight 15 for 115, and you kind of move on. That answers uh, most the questions I think in that game. Yeah, I wasn't surprised that the game was close. Um, un- unlike Scott, I mean, they uh, when you hold the opponent to 224 yards, Kentucky's passing game was basically non-existent except for a screen, except for a screen pass in the first quarter. Um, 
you know, defensively, obviously they did, they, they did well enough to win the game. The, the, the self-destructive nature of, of the penalties certainly screams, but what screamed to me was that uh, the Florida uh, calamities were much bigger than the Kentucky calamities uh, and notably the, the block field goal for the touchdown that Scott references that just changed the whole tenor of the, of, of the game changed the whole tenor in the stadium. You know, uh, as Mullen said, after it's his 10 point swing, um, you know, the, the, the fans were starting to probably start thinking, all right, here we go again. And all of a sudden they're winning the game. And then the very next series, Emory Jones throws, throws an interception again, uh, uh, much, much worse timing than, 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 uh, uh, Kentucky's single turnover. Florida's defense, by the way, um, has only forced one turnover in, in, in SEC play. That needs to change a little bit. And, and having said that, they've, they've obviously played better than they did last year, but they're going to have to start making some opportunities uh, uh, for the offense if the offense isn't going to be able to take advantage of some opportunities. And obviously there's a lot of growth to, to come on that. And we talked, we've talked the last couple of weeks, when they're going to find the guy on the outside who's going to be the playmaker, still looking. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, still, they still can't settle on a running back, and I don't know if they want to. Um, but, uh, every time, uh, uh, Damian Pierce touches the ball, he seems to, he seems to do pretty well. A couple of times he had a couple, I think he had two runs, maybe Scott, that were called back for holding penalties the other day, uh, brutal. And, and I go to the, uh, the interception that Florida made and returned it, I believe to the Kentucky 14, even that big interception had a 15 yard penalty that backed him up. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, led to that, uh, uh block field goal eventually Correct. or what have you. Yes. Yeah. So, so mistakes on top of mistakes and the mistakes at the worst possible time, um, you're on the road and Scott's hundred percent, right? This Kentucky is better than Tennessee. Uh, Kentucky is, you know, people's just roll their eyes, lost at Kentucky, lost at Kentucky. Well, you know, this, it's, it's not the same as it was. They got good players, okay? And, and good players, good coaching. Um, that was a very, very difficult uh, uh, get the other night, especially when, you, when you're going to start shooting yourself in the foot like that. Yeah, we talked last week about the uh, the lack of, of a star receiver emerging and, and those playmakers. And, and I had posed the question, I said, well, maybe you don't need that if you've got this really dynamic running game. We, we didn't see that at Kentucky. So I guess for, from where you guys sit, the Florida we saw against Alabama looked very different than the Florida we saw against Kentucky. Do we think this is a team that just by identity essentially plays to its competition, whether that's up or that's down? Well, you know, you can make that case in those two games. I, I thought that I, – I mean, I don't think it's really – you can pinpoint that at this point. I mean, I don't think the body of work there – is enough. It's five games. Uh, did they play a lot different against Alabama? Certainly on the offensive line they did, but they didn't win that game. They lost to Kentucky. They lost to Alabama. Um, so I think those are questions, you know, what kind of team is this? I think it's a, a young team. I think it's a talented team. Uh, I think it's still a team that can have a really good season, but when you lose a game like you they did at Kentucky, it naturally raises a lot of questions and, and they just went up there and didn't look good being there. And I'm as interested as anybody because your question really, it serves a game like this week very much. So Vanderbilt on paper, Florida should really handle Vanderbilt. 
Uh, everybody has kind of handled Vanderbilt except UConn last week. And uh, I know they've got two wins, but I mean, Vanderbilt's an undermanned team. They're really uh, one of the lower uh, lower ranked FBS teams out of 129. They're probably in that 120 to 129 range. So uh, this is a chance for Florida to not play to its uh, competition's level and come out and get a big win. I think that's what Dan Mullen wants to see. I think that's what uh, the players want to see. I know for a fact it's what Florida fans want to see because they've been telling me on Twitter all week, uh, <laughs> you know, that they this team needs to come out and crush Vanderbilt. Uh, but if you if we're at, if we're talking next week about a 24-20 win against Vanderbilt, then I think we might know the answer to your question, Adam. I just don't know if I could sit here and say Alabama and Kentucky, they were just two different animals, one at home, one on the road. Uh, first road game for a lot of key players for Florida and the SEC. So we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. You know what else the fans are saying on Twitter? They're saying the season's over. You know, I, granted, it, it, it is two losses. And, and let's just say, for argument's sake, the Florida one has won the rest of its games. What do we got, 11, an 11 and 2 season? 11 and 2, yes. You they won a bowl game. game. Yeah. Right, is, and and uh, they're saying, are the, are, are the games just spinning their wheels as a New Year Six <laughs> program? Well, I mean, you know, I've seen that. I've seen I've seen a bunch of references like that. And you know what I've also seen? I've also seen the players saying, you know, we got our season and over, we got stuff to play for. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you can still you still make memories and still and still change some things around. I mean, I you know, I I write a lot of historical kind of things. I remember 1992 very, very well. And Florida got destroyed. Uh, they won their first game against Kentucky in the SEC. They got destroyed at Tennessee. And um, a week and a half later on a Thursday night, went to Mississippi and got absolutely destroyed. Shane Matthews had his Heisman uh, candidacy ruined that night when he got sacked, I think, five or six times. The season was over. They were, the writers were writing that back then. There was no Twitter back then, but the season was over. I remember the Orlando Sentinel paper. I didn't work for them then, but I eventually did. They, you know, Gators are dead, dead. Put a toe tag on them. Well, they won the SEC ESA because you don't know what is going to happen. And, you know, the, to, for fans to sit there and, and talk about, you know, the gloom and doom and, you know, what's there to play for anymore. Well, for, if you're, you're, you're a player going out to practice every day. Uh, no, that's not, the, that's not the world they live in. There's plenty of things that they can do, and it starts with Vanderbilt this week, um, to Scott's point. And, and uh, they, they, they're not looking at it that way. They also know that they got some games down the line that are going to mean a lot to them. LSU in two weeks, and certainly the Georgia game will be a huge game. And Florida State down the line, there's, 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 there's plenty left to get excited about this season. If you're a player, I'm not sure about some of these fans, though. When we talked last week, we talked about Anthony Richardson. And, and you had said, Chris, you know what? There's too much being expected of a guy who, in fairness, made a few spectacular plays, but they were against two pretty poor teams, and you just didn't know enough about how he would factor into a regular game. What I found so sort of remarkable about this weekend is that Anthony Richardson did come back and he did play, but was not really a part of the story at all. So I guess the question is, moving forward, what does that look like in, in, in your guys' minds Florida obviously is struggling with its downfield passing game. Um, is is, Anth- is more Anthony Richardson the answer to that? How do you think he's going to be used? Because it certainly didn't seem like against Kentucky that he was able to make much of an impact on the game. Well, I'll ask you what I would ask a fan. How, how good is he reading defenses out of? We don't know. That's the problem. Uh, how good is he playing against, you know, high major competition? 
we also don't know. When it, when it comes to standing in the pocket and going through progressions and doing stuff, we, we, yeah, we don't know. And you're right, and we won't know till we get a chance to see that. But uh, I think the coach probably has a pretty good idea about it. And he's the guy who's gonna he's going to going to make the decisions. Uh, uh, what, what was, he was one for one the other day for eight yards. I think I think also he was sitting in the pocket on one play and underthrew a, a, a player really badly. And I think what ended up being a, a penalty on Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken. So the body of work, uh, the example, the sample size is is non-existent basically. Um, that it, it will increase, you know, we'll get more and we'll probably see a hell of a lot of them this week. If things go as they're anticipated, Florida is a 38 point favorite. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the talent discrepancy is night and day, but uh, we'll know, we'll see him more this week. I guess I can need to correct myself. Well, I think we'll see him more this week. I don't know that we'll know anymore given the uh, talent discrepancy between Vanderbilt and Florida, but I think we need to see more Anthony Richardson. Anthony Richardson need, needs to obviously get some more chance because you need that change of pace. That energy is a, uh, is can be a, a, a big lightning bolt strike for this, for this offense, I think, but uh, we still have any, I don't even think mentioned Emory Jones's name to date in this, in this podcast. And obviously there's some things that, 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 that he has to do a lot better also. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with pretty much what all Chris just said there on Richardson. Uh, I mean, he's such an intriguing talent and provides an energy boost. I think uh, with where this team is right now, I think they're, they they want to see more of him. I think he's finally back where they feel comfortable 100%. Uh, so I would fully expect him uh, to get some action uh, against Vanderbilt on Saturday. But ultimately, uh, I don't think the big picture – has changed after the Kentucky. And I think this is still, you know, Emory Jones's job and they want to continue for him to grow into this role. I mean, he threw for 203 yards. Uh, I think he had 63 rushing. So, you know, they didn't lose the game because of Emory Jones. He had the costly interception, uh, led the points. Uh, but again, they were, they were still there at the end. It was not his fault that, you know, they came away from Kentucky with a loss. Uh, but I think what they need him to do more is be the reason they win some games. I think they need him to, uh, you know, be better downfield in the passing game. Uh, they need him to, you know, and he said it himself after the game, this is the time that he really has to be a leader. And I think probably right now, you know, that is one of his most important jobs uh, because I think this team, they have responded well. If you look on social media, their leaders have been pretty uh, out, outspoken this week. You know, like what Chris touched on earlier, hey, our season's not over. And that's the mentality that you want those guys to have. And a lot of that, obviously, inside the locker room is around Emory and the tone he sets. And the, so I mean, the quarterback position, though, is it's going to be interesting to see um, how – how they mix uh, Richardson back in there after really not, you know, having him for a couple of games and seeing him in a limited situation at Kentucky. But I do think there's a lot of unknowns from the fan side of it that the coaches kind of know, like he's, he's got a lot of room to grow. I mean, he really does. And uh, throwing him in there against Kentucky and saying, Hey, Anthony, we want you to, you know, lead us back in this game by throwing the ball down the field. It wasn't going to happen. So this weekend is homecoming, and one of the cool things that happens on a homecoming is theoretically people come home, right? Uh, and in this case, for the celebrity Mister Two Bits, there is a uh, a 
variety of celebrity Mr. Two Bits relating back to Florida's incredible success in the Olympics. So uh, tell us about how this uh, this big group came together to uh, to get the game started the right way this weekend. Well, it really came together back in August in Tokyo. I believe it's the numbers 26 Olympians that are going to be uh, on hand people that took part in the in the Summer Olympic Games uh, in, in Japan. Um, and the eight medalists are going to kind of be the ones that kind of out there and and do the kind of two bits thing. Uh, Caleb Dressel obviously uh, will be the the headliner. Grant Holloway a headliner. Those two guys have actually done Mister Two Bits before. Um, Grant Holloway famously did his and then started mock doing a mock high hurdle, uh, you know, <laughs> off the field, which was pretty actually actually clever on his part. Um, but I, 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 I spoke to Bobby Fink and I, first thing I said, when I got on my phone, I go, man, you, I just want to thank you for giving me like two pulsating, uh, nights of television. I mean, I wasn't like a, a, a rowdy games jumping out of the, out of the booth and falling off my chair and everything like that. Like, but those comebacks, um, were two, two of the best, uh, uh, of things that, that, that I watched in the Olympics. And, uh, I probably would have said the same thing if they had been, uh, you know, Florida state swimmers or, 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 or Kentucky swimmers or what have you. But, um, it's the guy who, uh, uh, all these, these, these kids that, that, that are doing these, these two bits this week, they never saw, they never saw the Mr. Two bits, the real Mr. Two bits, unless they were going to games, uh, well before he retired, I believe it was 2008 when he retired. I uh, obviously passed away in 2019, but um, uh, they know the tradition. And Bobby Fink says, it's, it, this is one of the greatest honors you could have. And this is a guy who stood at the top of a medal podium uh, yep. and, and with, with two gold medals around, around his neck. So they're not taking it lightly. Um, you know, Aubrey Monroe, I'm trying to think of the others, uh, 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 Taylor Manson, right? Um, yeah. Help me out. Help me out here, Scott. Uh, Kira, uh, Kieran Smith. Kieran Notice Smith obviously here. got a got a bronze medal. The uh, Mark, I can't say his name, the baseball player. Help me out. Mark Colasavari, who right. uh, got got called up to the Reds near the end of the season. How and then that? of course uh Natalie Hines, a former swimmer here, who mm-hmm. uh you know won uh on a relay team. So that's a good group of uh good group of athletes right there. Yeah, and I think also, if I'm not mistaken, that uh uh, uh Katie Ledecky is gonna be recognized. The new volunteer assistant coach, and um, she Ooh, obviously has has like he, 50, 50 medals. Maybe if, she, if mm-hmm. they may, she may not even be able to walk out there if she's going to wear them all. So I'm not. I don't know She's if I've heard cool. of her. I'll have to look for her. <laughs> you can you can definitely look her up. Yeah, and and of course Adam knows uh, very Aubrey Monroe very well. One of the one of the brightest lights I think that's ever come through the the softball program and. Um, really a, a, a huge leader for those for those national championship teams. Won a silver medal on the, as one of the three uh, former Gators that were on the softball team this year. It would be nice to see her back also. Yeah, so Gators from a variety of sports being honored in that way. And and while this is all going on, uh, simultaneously we have the start of Chris's favorite time of year, which is basketball season. So uh, Chris, you know we're going to have many weeks and many opportunities to get in pretty deep on what's going on with Mike White's team, but. From a uh, from a high level, give us uh, give us the outset of of the opening of practice and, and how things are looking at the complex. Yeah, basketball official practice started uh, last week. So obviously a a new look. We've talked about it here with the with the four transfers, all of them with some pretty good statistics on the back of their uh, on the back of their trading cards, if you will. Um, one of my first stories I did, I really enjoyed dealing with uh, Brandon McKissick, the Missouri Kansas City uh, transfer guard. Who is going to be a, a focal point? He is uh, he's the best transfer of this class. 
of the four of the four. Um, all, all and now all four of them are going to be uh, knee deep uh, in the rotation. I have to say, but McKissick is an interesting guy. Um, I wrote in there. He was in Jacksonville visiting some friends at a mall, and uh, people came up to him. They 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 didn't know why he was in the mall because they they figured he should be you know somewhere else with wherever the Jaguars were because he looks like a football player. And he goes, I, he goes, I don't play football. I play for the Gators. They're like, well, aren't you playing in, in Tampa? He goes, I don't play football. I play basketball. And so, and, and that's the kind of basketball player he is. He's very physical. He was the defensive player of the year in the summit league, just like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Flanders Fleming, the junior was the defensive player of the year in the, in the, in the, in the Southern conference. And it's funny because, you know, getting to know these guys, uh, I walk in the gym and I look around and I go, I, you know, I want to get to know these guys a little bit better. And one of the, I was I was in there the other day saying, all right, who can I write my next story on? And I'm watching, I'm looking around, and then I happen upon CJ Felder, okay, the transfer from Boston College. He was a he can be a three, four, five kind of combo. He's undersized uh, to be a center, but he's athletic enough to do so, certainly long arms. I said, all right, I'm gonna find out a little bit more about him. And on a team, like I said, with two defensive players of the year and 6'11", Colin Castleton, uh, I'm told that uh, uh, C.J. Felder is the best on-ball defender in the gym. So they, when, they, when they go to their smaller lineups, it, normally they switch in, in ball screen defense. They switch uh, positions one through four. Um, when they go to small ball, they're, they're going to be able to switch one through five. If, and he can switch on to point guards. He, he is a... I'm not saying he's an elite athlete, but he's an aggressive, long, um, he's raw, skilled guy, but not afraid to mix it up. And it just goes to what Mike White uh, has talked about. He, he believes this has a chance to be the best defensive team he's had. Uh, defense has been frustrating at times the last couple of years. Um, these guys are wired to play it. Um, I'm, I'm talking them up. I swore I wouldn't do a whole lot of talking up in the run-up to the season because so many things change once the, once the ball's thrown up and the minutes are distributed and guys have to get the agendas out of their head and stuff like this. But these guys are all saying the right things and they say they came to Florida to win. And C.J. Felder is a guy, I believe he won maybe 35 games uh, in his career. Uh, maybe, I don't even think maybe 30 games up at Boston College. I think won 11 conference games. He's never been to an NSA tournament. So uh, – being on a successful team is important to him, just like, uh, you know, experiencing a high success and going to the NCAA tournament is important to these other transfers who have never been there. They throw it up November 9th against Elon. Five days later, uh, Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock, uh, that'll be the first litmus test game. Florida State comes in. They've lost seven in a row. We'll, uh, we'll get to that down the line. they got four seven-footers on the team again, by the way. That does sound quite, a, quite an imposing challenge, so we'll, we'll get to that in due time. Uh, now I want to turn our attention to our PAT. So on Monday night, uh, as the, the stars aligned and only the way they can for Tom Brady to break the NFL's all-time record for passing yards while playing in New England as a buck, which is crazy when you consider that the Bucks almost never play the Patriots anyway. Uh, so for that to have happened and the timing, it really, sometimes these things just seem like uh, there, there's too much coincidence for it to be a coincidence. But it, was, it wasn't a particularly exciting moment when it happened. It happened kind of by accident when they added a yard after uh, the, the play had basically been posted. But it got me thinking about records that matter and records that are meaningful. Uh, I mean, records are broken all the time and 
you know, God knows the Elias Sports Bureau every day as something that's never happened before. But I was curious for, for you guys in your minds, what records in sports are truly, truly meaningful? And maybe it's the record Brady broke. I don't know, because that does show an incredible amount of longevity and success. Uh, so whether it's some, whether it's single season, whether it's career, what numbers really impress you? You know, Adam, you get we talk about all these sports and I kind of always lean toward baseball because I think the numbers matter the most in baseball and the number that to me, the numbers don't matter as much to me or I don't think really the sport as they used to because of so many different eras now and the, the game has changed, you know, whether it was from the steroid era of the 90s and early 2000s to now we're in this era where I was looking at some final team stats today. Some teams are using 30 and 40 pitchers during a season now. Mm. So, you know, just a lot of the records, they look so different. Uh, but the one that always, I think, still is as relevant today as it was in 1941 is the 56-game hitting streak by Joe DiMaggio. Uh, I, I, I would make an argument that I think that might be the most impressive uh, historical number in all of sports. Uh, just for an individual player, because I don't know if it will ever, ever be reached again. I mean, we've had some people to flirt with it. Well, Pete Rose was the closest, I think, with 44 back in 78. I remember Paul Molitor got up to about 37 one year in 1987. But there's just not been many people to come close to it. And we're looking at what that was 80 years ago this hmm. this uh, this summer. So, uh uh, I don't expect to see that fall during my lifetime, but, uh, you know, maybe somebody can come along and hit in 57. I don't know, but that one just stands out to me. Uh, and I recently read a book about it, uh, what he went through and some of the background of that history. And so it's fresh in my mind as well. Now, Scott, let me ask you this, though. Is that a record that is maybe less impressive in modern times because the way the game has changed? So if you think about it, DiMaggio probably would have three or four at-bats against the same pitcher, whereas today you're likely only to see a starter maybe two times through the order. So does part of that, is that record one of those that's maybe frozen in time and we shouldn't expect to ever be broken because of the way that specialization has changed pitching? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something that is worth uh, mentioning because, you know, nowadays a... You know, the stats show that the a pitcher's third time through an order, how high the average goes up. Right. So not a, not a lot of pitchers even make it three times through a, an order now. Um, the game was different. Uh, he was facing pitchers who, you know, would pitch complete games a lot more. Uh, mm-hmm. There was less specialization in the game. Uh, but the guy was unique to be able to do that. And you know what I like about the streak the most, or a little footnote about the streak is after he gets through with the 56-game streak, then he comes back and hits in 16 out of 17. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. So. Huh. Um, but, you know, I mean, I don't know, Adam. It's a good question you ask. I don't expect it to be broken for what you're saying there. Yeah. But one thing about baseball, it, it just goes through these cycles, and if it, it continues on this linear pace since it has since 1876 – the game will shift some other way someday, and maybe somebody you know breaks the record. I don't have the time or energy to look it up, but I am curious. In those fifty-six games, how many times did he get one hit, 
And how many times was that at the end of a game relative to the beginning? I mean, I, that yeah. would, that would provide some interesting color on this. There were there were a couple of close calls, and there were a couple of what you would call marginal scoring decisions. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, that's just part of the game. And I know one of the most controversial scoring decisions happened early in the streak. Hmm. Or you know, so um, it wasn't later on. But yeah, I'd have to go back and reference that book and look up. But I remember reading all that stuff and the. Again, I just still think it's an amazing streak all these years later. Very true. Chris, can you top that? Do you have a do you have a fifty-seven game streak you can give us in uh in figurative form here? Technically this isn't a record, but I'll go to this very same season of nineteen forty one and ask, is anyone ever gonna hit four hundred again? That's what uh, I thought Scott was gonna say. Ted Ted Williams hit four oh six that same year that uh, uh DiMaggio That's had his right. fifty six game hitting streak and George Brett, I think. 390, uh, Rod, Rod Carew, 388. Um, that's as close as anyone's gotten. And um, Scott, being the baseball historian and aficionado, knows that uh, I believe Ted Williams was hitting 400 on the last day of the regular season, which was a doubleheader. And they said, sit, one, sit this one out. He said, hell no, I'm not sitting out. And he upped his uh, average six points that day. Um, he was uh, six for eight. In, in, wow. in, in my in my opinion, the the greatest player of all time, um, and obviously I didn't see him play. He, I will say this: he was my father's favorite player, which I held a little dear to me. He ended up coaching the Wash or managing the Washington Senators. He was manager in 1969. But my uh, my dad talked talked Ted Williams up a lot um, as a kid. Remember, this is a guy who had to leave the game t- uh, twice, not once, twice during his prime to go uh, fly fly airplanes in yeah. first in World War II and then in Korea. So um, uh, again, that's not a record, but I say that. I mean, I say that because Scott referenced 1940. Will anyone ever hit 400, 400 again? Probably, you know, because eternity is a long time. But let me ask you this. Is anyone ever going to steal 100 bases again? No. Yeah. You're right. 100, right. Yeah. 130, right? right? 100, yeah. 126 uh, uh, in, in, in 1989, Ricky Henderson. Um, he stole 100 bases uh, five times in his career, I believe. The last time, 118. In, oh, who's the leading base dealer, I believe, this year is Trey Turner. With it's got He's got 45 or something like that. Hmm. I read a stat. There, there's going to be 20 teams in Major League Baseball or something like that. Uh, I, may be, I may be off, but the point, of, the point won't be lost in, in my inaccurate statement that there'll be 20-some teams in baseball that won't steal as many bases as Ricky Henderson had uh, the year he stole 126. That's so, wild. Um, I, 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 that, I'm sure, somehow, I, won't, I, I can't for the life of me figure it out, is a product of the, change, of the changing of the game, um, maybe because it's harder to figure out uh, or, or, or dissect pitchers' moves now because there's so many pitchers coming in and out. Uh, they're quicker to the plate than they used to be. I, uh, I don't know. That's a, that's, that's an analytical question that I'm not, uh, certainly not uh, qualified to answer, but I do have a, there is a record in a different sport. It, it, what is the only record that'll never be broken? There's a, there's a, f- a pro football record that'll never be broken. What is it? Well, it's, it's impossible I mean, to break. It's impossible. So this is involves some kind of rule change since it was broken. No, no. No possible to break, huh? Unless uh, I don't know what the impossible. Tony Dorsey's ninety-nine yard touchdown run. It'll never be broken. Yes, 
the longest run in NFL history will will always be the longest run in NFL history. And it has so, not even been tied since then. Huh? I don't think it's been tied. Monday night against the Vikings. I do. Remember yeah, I remember that. that. 1983. I remember That's that. Right. That's right. Um, Adam, what's your record? I don't even know. I was busy while you're talking. I was looking up the averages for the last like 10 years. Ricky Henderson um, stole Ricky Henderson stole 2,190 bases. That's wild. And, <laughs> and the batting Trey Turner was also the batting champion in the National League this year at yeah. three 328, which 328. You know. Yeah. So I went back and looked at, at the leaders in batting average while Chris was talking for the last 10 years. If you take out the 2020, which was the, you know, it was the, I think, what was it, 60 game season? So obviously not a full season. Uh, to find the last time someone even hit 350 in a full Major League Baseball season, you'd have to go back to Josh Hamilton 10 years ago. Wow. And he wow. hit, I believe the number was 358. So no mm-hmm. one, it's not only a record that hasn't been, that hasn't been broken, it hasn't even been approached. And if you look at the trend lines, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to. That's right. Um, that, that's I think that that would probably I think that would be mine. I think Ted and I, and I will say mine. this: in no, in no social media in those two years, I remember. I mean, Rod Carew. I want to say it was it was late July. He was still over four hundred. He's on the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, you know, that there, there was a big deal when that was being broached in the time. And of course, George Brett came. George Brett may have been right, may have been close to four hundred, maybe heading into September. Um, I don't know that one hundred percent, but I mean three ninety. That was a hell of a year. <laughs> three nights yeah. is a hell of a year by him. Yeah. But uh, I, I just remember how big a deal it was about that. I can only imagine what it would have been would have been like with Twitter around, right? Yeah, I mean, another record, uh, individual record, I don't think ever is going to be broken is obviously Wilt Chamberlain's 100 points. I mean, that's uh, that's mind-boggling when you really think about it. Kobe got 81. Yeah. I mean, he there'll did. be some, you know, that's that's snipping it. And granted, it was kind of it was a, it was late in the year. I, was it the last year? It was last game of, of the? No, it wasn't. No, that was later when he had his seventy or whatever it was when his. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's the one who's game. come come closest. So you would think with the three pointer and Steph Curry, mm-hmm. maybe he hit, maybe he hits like thirty three pointers one game. Or maybe, something. but or 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 it's somebody who's not even born yet who's uh, yeah. a freakazoid who comes around and does it because yeah. so I would I wouldn't cap that one. Um, because so many because people have gotten close to it, you know, in, in relatively recent history versus to Adam's point, uh, no one sniffed 400 in 40 years. So, no, no, yeah. it's kind of ironic that DiMaggio and Williams did that both in 1941. Yeah. And the next season is they went off to war. I did just discover that the only one in my lifetime that's come close was Tony Gwynn hit 394 in 1994. He hit 394? Yeah, 394 in 1994. Oh, see, I, uh, that. I, yeah, I forget about that. Either. That was a strike shortened year, but yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so, okay, so that, that also, right, that cuts into the, uh, that's sort of like the, the 2020 asterisk. COVID number. It's an asterisk. Yeah, it's, it's an, an asterisk. asterisk. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure what records will be broken this weekend, but if there are any, uh, Chris and Scott will have you covered, so make sure you're locked in these guys on floridagators.com. And on Twitter, assuming the platform doesn't, you know, disappear for a number of hours, uh, at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris, that is where you will find all of your Florida Vanderbilt coverage. And we will, of course, be back to talk about it all next week. Thank you guys very much. Have a good one. Thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. Although it often seems like freshmen will be around forever, more often than not, college careers fly by. A good example of this can be found in Trey Dean III. 
who has quickly gone from a true freshman starting at corner to a senior patrolling the secondary as a safety. Originally from South Atlanta, we connected with the Georgia native to learn more about him and his journey, beginning with when he first stepped onto the football field. Uh, I started playing ball at the age of um, five. Um, I played a lot of sports, but I always gravitated towards football. That was a sport I really wanted to play. Um, always was good at it. I played running back growing up. I played the offensive side. Then I gravitated toward the defensive side. Yes. Yeah, so tell me, tell me how you got started. I mean, when you, what what was it that you liked so much about the game? Well, I liked scoring touchdowns at first when I was a little <laughs> kid, but now uh, I had gravitated towards the defensive side of the ball. For my parents, I used to play little league. We had a great little league team, so that's really about it. How did you end up switching to the defensive side? How early or late in in your career did that happen? Who was the first one to say, "Hey, maybe maybe you'd be better on this side of the ball"? Well, I was thinking, "Why would it hit to rather than get hit?" So I always thought of it that way. <laughs> was uh, was there a particular hit that made you think, "Oh man, maybe maybe I should switch this up"? In high school, I was a freshman. Went against went to like this passing camp and went against John Grenard's team, man. He had hit me, and after that, I had played. <laughs> I started defense. You're like, coach, I gotta, we gotta change this up. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I always <laughs> play both sides. And I just end up playing defense. So Ahmad Black is your cousin. Uh, we've had him on this show multiple times. Um, what what role did did he play in kind of your your football background? What role did family play? Because I know family was involved in the game as well. Okay, one of my uncles played tight end for the um for Atlanta Falcons. He actually played here too, Harrison Houston. Hmm. Uh, he played at Florida too, but I always like growing up. Florida was my first offer. I always knew I wanted to go to Florida, but like going late in the recruiting process, I was committed to Alabama. And when Coach Mullen got here, Florida just really felt like home after that. But uh, I always uh, my other uncle played for the Carolina Panthers, but he played receiver at Illinois. My other cousin on my other side, um, his dad is Amari, Amari Cooper, is his son. Huh. So I grew around football a lot. So. I'm sure you had, you know, Ahmad was in your ear. What was he saying when you were thinking about going to Alabama? How, you know, he, he is not a shy guy. So I doubt he was very, uh, I doubt he held back when telling you what he thought. He didn't really pressure me. Uh, like, even when I was going through recruiting process, committed to other schools, like my shower, um, like my whole bathroom was Florida. My room was Florida, everything. So it just happened. It felt like home. So I, I guess it's always been the place to be. Like, even though I was committed to Alabama, I, my little bathroom is full of gator stuff. So you said that you, you switched when, when Coach Mullen got here. Um, what was it about Coach Mullen that made you that made you flip? Why was he so important to that? Like the coach he is, you know, um, I knew he was going to hold me to a higher standard. Uh, not only on the field, but off the field as well, helped me become a better man. I know he was a great coach, you know. people. He, um, and then his coaches around him, I knew he, he wasn't going to hire anybody that wasn't going to be on the same mindset or lived up to get a standard like he wanted to be. So, I, I really liked him as a coach. I think he was the only coach that really could compete with Nick Saban. You mentioned some of the other sports that you played outside of football. Uh, what what were those sports, and how did they sort of feed into your game? Growing up, I played every sport. I played from every sport. Then I just gravitated towards uh, basketball, track. Um, I actually should have played baseball, now that I think about it. But baseball went like it was too boring of a game for me. <laughs> you can't hit people in baseball. I know. Well, you could, but yeah, it's, you're not really supposed to. Um, so when you when you focused in on football, 
how did you feel like those other sports that you played and those other skills, how did they contribute to your to your football game? Well, track, you know, with speed, uh, then I think that's the only one I really could equate. Uh, I think all old linemen should play basketball. <laughs> why, why is that? Help them with their footwork. <laughs> That's that's it's not a it's not a bad idea. I think the best like a uh, basketball spin move just can be like equated to a football spin move, like somebody like holding the block and the pass rusher doing a spin move. You do some cross training with those guys for sure. Um, so you said you always knew you wanted to come to Florida. So when you when you arrived, what was it like? I mean, how difficult was it as a freshman getting into the program? What do you remember about uh when, when you got started? Well, you know, because Monday. He does a great job of like taking care of his freshman stuff. Um, but you know me playing as a true freshman, starting as a true freshman, that was like my only overwhelming thing. But I, uh, Coach Mullen, I'm ever a player on the field until he's like ready. Like he said, I think he'll put a, a play on the field um, a game later than a game early. So when you got in, I'm sure you had a lot of uh, a lot of older teammates to rely on to get the the DBU right. All about DBU. Uh, which guys do you remember having the biggest impact on you? And making sure that that you felt welcome, that you understood everything that was going on, and all of that. Uh, C.J. Henderson, I say that, yeah. And the receivers as well, like um, Van Jefferson and Tyree Cleveland, like me just doing taking stuff from them, like doing one on ones with them to help me. I knew I was guarding the best at practice, so the games wasn't really hard. How did C.J. help you? Obviously, you know he went on to be a top ten pick, uh, so he had a lot of credibility. Um, what what did he help you do? Well, you know, just he played as true freshman, so like, I just try to take the path and do the things he looked at and do the things he did. Uh, he just take me under as like a little brother, you know, um, um, like staying out the practice, doing the different techniques, learning the different things I need to do to help, to help me become a, a good at my position. So I feel like he was the best at the time, so I was trying to do what the best did. As far as the, the wide receivers helping you too, I mean, wh- how did that work? Would they... Would they maybe burn you in practice and say, hey, this is what you should have done differently? How does that work when guys that are you're going up against are the ones helping you get better? It's like after practice, you know, um, they help me become a like, competitor on the field as well. Uh, help me in the offseason, you know, like doing like uh, drills and stuff with them and stuff. Yeah, I, I mentioned uh, DBU. That doesn't get talked about as much now as, as it did before. But I'm curious – what what does that mean to you? The the legacy of that, the guys that have come through the program that have kept that standard high. How important is that to you and your teammates that are in that that DB room? Uh, well, you know, I think I think DBU, I think it's going to come back. You know, uh, especially this year, um, especially with me and Kyrie, uh, I think we'll hope hold that. Uh, so get by rolling. I think it's going to really roll back this uh, come back into effect. Um, I don't think it really has left. That's really reason why uh, one of the reasons why I came here as well. You know, playing as a as a true freshman, you know, you're gonna you're gonna make mistakes, and they're gonna be they're gonna be loud, right? Everybody's gonna see it if you're playing as a true freshman. How did you get through some of the growing pains that came with that when things didn't go your way? How did you work through those? Well, shoot, one just God, you know, my faith, you know, um, and then refer back to my training. I knew what God. And the stuff that I did in the off season, I knew that was gonna help me um, get through the season and um, help me have uh, a good freshman season. So you know, um, I knew my coach was gonna put me in the best position to make plays as well. If you look back now, if if you could tell yourself a few things from what you know now, when you were a freshman, 
what would you say now that that would have helped you if you had known this, uh, you know, four years ago? More preparation, 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 preparation. All officers do, they run a different thing. They wear the same thing, just in a different way. But when you know the base and what to look at, it eliminates the hassle and everything, really. So is that just, is that watching more film? Is that like, wh- which part of preparation is that? There's no um, instincts, working on instincts and um, what to look at and stuff like that. How do you work on instincts? Is that, I mean, is that just reps? Yeah, Where does that come from? Yeah, reps, reps and what to look at, like. Especially at the safety position, the run pass keys, what to look at. Once you get the run pass keys, what to look at next and just stuff like that. You know, we talked about the, the impact that Coach Mullen has had on you. You've also had a you know a coaching change recently in the in the, the DB room. Um, Coach McGriff coming in, what kind of impact has he had on the safeties? Oh, a great impact. You know, he held us a high, a high standard, not only on the field, but uh, really off the field as well. Um to me, I think he's one of the best defensive best coaches in the country. You know, Coach McGriff, you know, he like he played. I mean, he um coached in the league, so you know the ins and outs. So you know how to get you there and prepare you at the next level, and not only prepare you uh, at the next level, but at this level as well. You know what to do to put you in the best position to make plays week in and week out. When you came in, I'm sure you, you know you have individuals. You sit down, you talk about you know what you're going to work on. Uh, what have you specifically worked on with him? How has he helped you get better in the time that he's been with you? Like I said, my instincts, you know, what are different things to look at on film, you know, continue to improve my instincts week in and week out. Uh, we sit down and watch film, you know, even though I have a good game, to, to really, you know, be um, to excel. Yeah, I, I always find it interesting when guys have numbers that stand out. There are not a lot of guys that, that want the number zero. Uh, is there a story behind that? Why did you want the number zero? I think it was like something really unique. Uh, so that's really why something new, you know, saying nobody had it here at Florida. So to start like something new, start like a new legacy. Was there someone else you saw at, a, at a, you know, maybe like in the NFL, at a different school that gave you that idea? Where where did that idea come from? No, it just came from the man above. You know, I just felt like try something new. So I just got it. So, OK, so is it just zero? Would you also do double zero or is one zero the only way to go? One zero. One zero. Double zero is too much? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's crazy. When I, I was looking over your bio and it's like, oh my gosh, this guy is already a senior. It seems like you just got here, right? Uh, when, when you think about that, has it flown by? Can you believe where you already are in your Gator career? Yeah, it's crazy. It flew by really, really fast. Um, yeah, so it really did. Yeah, what what are some of your best memories when you think about your time? What is it? Is it a game? Is it a moment? What are some of the things that stand out when you think about your career? Well, I got my first interception against Florida State freshman year. That's a good way. That that's a good first one to have. Yeah, that's my best memory. When when you get away from football, what what do you enjoy doing away from the field? Mm, training. I don't play video games. Uh, going to church. Just chilling, hanging out with my teammates. There's got to be something fun, right? What's like, what's, if you have, if you had a day where you didn't have to train, you didn't have to work out, you could just do something fun, what what would you do? Do something with my teammates. Probably go to Orlando, something like that. To the, the parks? Yeah, uh, we go shopping. You go shopping? Yeah. Okay, so you're not, you're not going to Disney World. You're going, you're going to the mall millennia. No, see, see, no, we probably, we would go to uh, Halloween for a night, something like that. Okay, do some Universal, okay. And then go to Mall Millennia. (laughs) Right. 
it's a very nice mall. I, I, I don't argue with that. It's a very nice mall. Um, I want to bring things back to, to football. You know, obviously, Kentucky did not go the way that you guys wanted it to. Uh, as you sort of decompressed from that, what stood out to you? When you sat down and, and you looked at film, what, what were the keys that stood out to you? Sure, you know, just work on the plays that we did, didn't execute on the ultimate goal, you know, just keep winning. Then I think everything else will handle itself. You know, penalties were a big part of the story of that game, and it's something that the coaches address. In what way do the coaches address something like penalties? How do you get better in, in that area? Well, you know, you know, just first, you know, acknowledging the penalties, you know, then second, work on them, you know, just take a step stone each and every day to uh, eliminate them. You touched on this, but in terms of controlling what you can control, a lot of people on the outside look in and say, oh, well, you know, you can't do this anymore. You can't do that anymore, et cetera, about the SEC championship, college football playoff. How do you guys deal with that internally? Obviously, you you know, you guys know how you know how it works, right? But you still have games to play. How do you stay engaged and stay focused when there's all this noise externally out there? I always think of it like it's only one person that really got the last say so, and that's the man above. So uh, I don't think we're in the bad spot, but uh, I think uh, we do we we do what we're supposed to do. I think we'll shock a lot of people still. But like I said, the man above got the last story, got the last say so. We only lost two games. They ain't like, you know, still ranked. So we just got to do what we got to do, you know, just it'll just make the story at the end be better. Um, getting back in the swamp against Vanderbilt, it's obviously a little bit of an early kick, but, you know, what does it mean to have the chance to get back out, to be in the swamp, and, uh, you know, hopefully have a chance to, to put on a, a strong performance? Well, you know, every time it's a pit, it's, you know, just a blessing to be out there in the swamp, you know, um, just get our show people who we made of, you know, take each game step by step, don't look past anybody uh, or this and that, um, at the end of the day, this is the SEC, so we're going to prepare how we need to prepare, you know, just go out there and play to the Gator standard. Well, Trey, thank you so much for your time. I wish you a lot of luck the rest of the year, and uh, and thank you again for joining us. No, thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.